according to Matthew. Jesus steps into a boat. Remember, he was going from the southern part of the Sea of Galilee after the episode with the pigs. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. You see here this paragraph, while of course it is a paragraph filling us with awe and faith, and showing that Jesus put so clearly things in perspective, he says, people are afraid of dealing with, you cannot say your sins are forgiven, but he simply says, what is more difficult? What if I tell to this man, stand up and go? Will you then believe that the other one is possible, which sounds like more easy? And in that way, of course, Jesus gives us a very refreshing view on things, because many people would be able to say, well... Perhaps he had the paranormal power to get this man up and make him walk, but to forgive his sins, that means to burn his karma, that's something else that would be a higher thing, more subtle, and therefore it's not necessary that if you can do one, you can do the other. But as you can see, Jesus looks at it in another way, like what are the fruits of the tree. He says, after all, he starts from the facts. He's very down to earth. He says, after all, what is more easy to do, to say, to fulfill this or that? Therefore, if I can fulfill this, which appears like more shocking, more surprising, then why shouldn't I be able to fulfill the other one as well? In this way, he uses, and you will see that all over his existence, he uses this miracle and healing, as I told you from the beginning, as a motivator for spirituality, as an increase in faith, showing that if this can be done, then automatically you should be able to praise God, to believe in the higher truths of God. Uh, Jesus continuously makes this connection. Many people would say, wait a second. The fact that somebody can lay hands and heal doesn't automatically mean that God exists. That is the problem exactly of this world of occultism where God is sometimes forgotten. We want to heal with the hands, but where is God in this process? We don't care about God. While Jesus all the time brings us back to God, He says, the fact that I can do this, let it be a proof of the existence of the One that has sent me. He uses every single paranormal fact, every single power and piece of knowledge concerning healing and the others only as a motivator for the existence of God. 
it is like somebody says, well, telepathy. Telepathy is just a form of resonance at the level of the mind. Does telepathy prove the existence of God? No. Technically speaking, uh, we could have, we could imagine people doing telepathy and at the same time having nothing to do with the existence or inexistence of God. But Jesus all the time says, see, I do telepathy and therefore God exists. Take heart. He is using all the time any factor of healing or of paranormal, twisting it to God, which is also a certain way of seeing a kind of automatic consecration. Jesus is consecrating every fact of the paranormal, every fact of uh, healing and so on, to God. Because even the tritest fact, which some people say, wait, 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 there's no need to think about God, to think about this. Nevertheless, Jesus all the time turns them toward God, gives them a divine meaning, which shows exactly the sense of consecration. That's exactly what consecration would be seen from his standpoint at the level of his action. And it ends with a beautiful paragraph which says, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. They don't say when they saw how much authority God has given to this man, but to men generally, that if one can do it, everybody can do it and Jesus repeats it all the time. It's like this automatically demonstrates an exalted condition of the human being that then if Jesus said your sins are forgiven, everybody can say that it is a quality of the human being related with our belonging to the divine consciousness. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, this being taken from the prophet Hosea. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus sometimes makes uh, this uh, makes this beautiful distinction. First of all, starting this paragraph is like you see here the calling of one of the uh, apostles, Matthew himself, who is the author of this gospel. So he should know how it actually happened. And basically, imagine that this, in today's conditions, this would require a tremendous leap of faith that you are at your job and somebody who is a bit of a prophet or looks like one or has a reputation comes and says, follow me. And the man drops his job and drops his occupation and drops his all and starts following that man. It kind of requires already a special inclination. That is why you can see that Matthew from the very beginning was a man of faith. He was a person who was actually on the verge of dropping out. He was about to let go. Only a man who is on the edge can let go so easily and who is in this way prepared. Right. 
And uh, one of the typical things of the life of Jesus that he often stays with the low caste people, the, the not so holy, at least what they consider to be not so holy, but the society was becoming highly hypocrite at that time already, because many of these tax collectors, sinners, and all kind of other simple people, not to speak about the others who were outsiders, Gentiles and Romans and whatever, they were actually excellent people from a spiritual standpoint. They had a heart, they had faith, they were right for the spiritual things, and all these things that we are righteous and they are sinners, it just became a social institution because we seem to do the right thing in the eyes of the world. Remember the story about fasting in public and showing off how holy you are and shit like this. And at the same time, the real heart which exists in the human being. That is why in the case of Jesus, Jesus is always a founder of talents. He finds all the time the hidden pearls uh, in the middle of the mud sometimes. And of course the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, as it would be said, uh, the people who pretended to be on the right hand of God, the Holy One, they feel offended because all kind of uh, religious Jewish laws in that day, they said that if somebody mingles with those who are already defiled and enters under their roof and whatever, eats with them, then that person is also defiled and has to go and has to wash themselves and do sacrifices and blah blah blah, all kind of rituals and all kind of complicated things. And uh, therefore, <coughs> this was for them an issue, as I told you last time, with a Roman centurion who was aware of the mind of the Jews and this distinction. And Jesus says, answers with such a common sense answer, which he is putting later in the famous parable of the prodigal son, that he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. First of all, it is logical that if indeed these people are further from God the way you claim they are, that they are sinners and uh, outsiders, then of course why shouldn't they be held? Because for them the leap is bigger. At least you pretend to be just near the door, almost on the threshold, almost there. Good for you, you don't need my help then, because after, after all you are not even so humble to ask for the help or to realize that you need some help. You already believe you are righteous, you are good. Good, stay with your conscience like this. But those people, they believe they are sinning. That means in a society which so, is so polarized, those people did whatever they did. They collected taxes, they were practicing prostitution, they were doing whatever, all kind of other things of the day. And of course when somebody does so in a society which is so judgmental and so uh, punishing, so uh, polarized, then automatically people believe that they are irrecuperable that they are sinners, that they will go to hell. That means people will say, well, I'll go to hell. It reminds me automatically of the episode of the man who is, was killing Muslims and so on uh, in the movie of Gandhi, in the life of Gandhi. And he said, the Muslims have killed my child, my wife. I want revenge. I killed many of them. I'm going to hell and I don't care. It's like that man says, I don't care. I'm lost anyhow. So do the tax collectors and the sinners here. They consider themselves, well, I have done so much shit that there is no way for me that I can straighten it up. 
And usually such persons, paradoxically, they have a very big yearning to fix it up. But the religion of the day doesn't give them any hope. It says you are going to go to hell because what you did is too much. It's like Milarepa, killing 35 people and then you are going to go to hell because people who are normal can barely save their soul. But you who are a multiple murderer, what can you save anymore? Like there is no more hope. And Jesus is exactly the one who comes with the hope. Remember that hope is one of the capital virtues in the Christian studies about uh, sins, you might have known if you have studied a little bit Christian theology, Sunday school or things like this, the old saints have defined different categories of sins out of which the most popularized and the most known are the seven deadly sins, the seven capital sins. I don't even remember their list by heart, but like sloth and greed and anger and uh, whatever other those seven sins are, I'm sure you can find them very easily throughout uh, theological treatises and so on. Those would be the seven deadly sins, but you probably are not aware that there are sins which are catalogued even worse than those, like for example the sins against the Holy Spirit, which are considered to be much worse. Uh, than those even. And on the first position, the worst of them all is one which sounds flabbergasting and which you should never forget. The worst of all of sins, according to all the Christian mystics, is losing heart. It is hopelessness. If you lose your hope, it's the worst of them. Because a man who has lost hope is ready to go to hell and will do all the others. A man with no hope to reach to nirvana will kill and will steal and will rape and do whatever because he has no more hope anyhow. What has he got to lose? Therefore, as long as you don't have hope, you are doomed. It's the worst of the worst of them all. It's the capital one. It's the ultimate one. And that is why Jesus is bringing hope automatically. These people who felt left outside and hopeless, I am not one of the righteous ones. I, with my lifestyle, am doomed. I'm collecting tax or I am a whore or whatever and I shall never be able to redeem myself because my God is so pretentious, my God is so severe, my God is so unforgiving. Suddenly Jesus comes and says on the contrary, God is forgiving and here is the hope. And therefore, Jesus is coming with this common sense, wonderful, down-to-earth judgment, because he's saying, why do you expect me to attend to those who are almost there? Those who are almost there are almost there, and they have to see for themselves. But basically, he's coming to those that need. Actually, actually, exactly as Milarepa Coming out of multiple murder is the man with an aspiration that is tremendous. It has been noticed often in history that men and women who were coming with a big handicap, with a big problem, they often became very, very, very devoted and they had a tremendous aspiration. Because from the fact that they had everything to lose, they went into the extreme that now they had everything to gain. And in this condition, they are ready to give it the whole hand. That is why there is a subtle meaning in this. Because on the surface, this is just a social act. 
okay, Jesus is ministering to those who are more miserable, who are more on the outside, because the others anyhow have got something. But on the other hand, when you're confronted with other things that Jesus said and done, you are going to see some very interesting things. Because Jesus knows that one of the greatest potentials for repenting, for doing uh, some penance, for kind of straightening your ways, is in those who are on the outer side and further, because they indeed know that they are in trouble. It is like Gurdjieff says, to be able to get out of the prison, first you must have a clear conscience of the fact that you are a prisoner in a prison. And if you are not painfully aware of the fact that you are a prisoner in a prison, how are you going to wish to get out? Then you are going to live with the easy, say with the take it easy feeling that yeah, right, yeah, it's good the way it is, yeah, it could be better, right, but no. Gurdjieff says you have to be desperate. You are a prisoner in a terrible prison. When you get that desperation, then of course you would do anything. Losing your life in the process will mean nothing because you are like a desperate prison, imprisoned for life in a dungeon. And he, for him it is not so much to dig up 40 meter long tunnels with a teaspoon or doing things like this because nothing is too much when indeed you have got nothing to lose anymore. And that is why Jesus notices, and it's a historical thing, that those people who fell the most, they were exactly those people who wanted to come up the most because they had the most to win. They felt abandoned and something a little bit, some, suddenly a little bit of attention was given to them. And then they said, who, me? Can I do this? Do you believe in me? Wow! And then suddenly, like the heavens were open because they just needed this. They had power, but they believed that they were lost to God and they had no chance and they didn't dare to hope. That is why Jesus is bringing them the capital story of hope. The same thing by which he accuses the Pharisees here is very, very beautiful because uh, in the book of Revelation, in the end, in the revelation of John, uh, it is supposed that God talks that uh, John hears in a vision the voice of God or the voice of Jesus or whatever and the voice of the Lord uh, says it is some letters of the angel to some churches, to some communities it's a highly metaphoric thing as pro probably we'll get one day to analyze it and then the voice of the Lord says I have heard that you did some of the deeds which I told you and you were... Uh, warm in the ways of God, but alas, you were not hot on what I told you to do. And alas, you were not even cold in the ways in which I told you to be. And he says, pity, because if you are hot, it was right. And if you were cold, then I would have made you hot. Like the extremes touch each other. One who is an ultra-atheistic, can become the greatest believer in God because he realizes how stupid I was that I was so atheistic and now I have to repair. There were years and years which I have wasted by being atheistic and denying the existence of God and now I have a lot to pay for so I have to go full power. The one who is very cold can easily become very hot but he says, unfortunately, you were lukewarm. 
and says the angel of God, I'm not quoting literally, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That means lukewarm is not good enough. Hot is very good, and or even cold is better, because somehow the divine alchemy can turn the cold into hot. Remember that the one who is cold easily becomes hot, but the one who is lukewarm is deadish. He is in the middle and he cannot become anything. That is why Jesus here goes for the extreme into this, the extreme emotional nature as uh, we spoke so often in other fields of yoga. And that is why, remember this, because these people, the sinners and the tax collectors, they are the people of the time that were cold. They were not the kadosh type of people. They were not holy in the eyes of the society. They were hopeless. They were uh, the lost ones. They were the sinners. And Jesus comes and gives them hope and suddenly makes them hot because these people realize, wow, I had everything to lose. I was going head forward to hell and now this man has given me paradise again. It's like everything has come back to me and therefore my aspiration is much bigger. That is why you are going to see that very often people who did a lot of wrong things, it's very well known, sinners who repented, whores who became holy, and things like this. That means when you did something really nasty, then your power to repent becomes so big because indeed there is this tension. Some yogis see this even a little bit like a stretching. They say the further you are from God, it's like the tension increases. It's like you stretch a piece of rubber. The more you stretch the rubber, the more tense it is. So when you release it, zap, it just goes all the way up. One who is really far, foo, will go to heaven like this. One who is close, the zipper, the rubber is not stretched enough. And that is why, funny enough, one who is high evolves very slowly because the attraction is not so big, the tension, the motivation is not so big, he is almost in paradise, and then why should he bother? And the one who is almost in hell kicks his feet with great desperation to reach the kingdom of heaven and evolves with an amazing speed. This is a very well-known thing in history where remember that people had everything to lose, they got very hot and they repented and they did tremendous efforts. Remember always Mary Magdalene and Mary of Egypt and uh, Augustine and Milarepa and so many others who had everything to lose and eventually they, they won everything because of this tension. This makes, even in terms of chakras, the tantric goddess which provides the greatest aspiration, the greatest tapas, the greatest evolution, is actually the Tipura Bhairavi, which is the goddess specific to Mulatara. It's like when you are really furthest away from Sahasrara, whoo, then the tension is maximum, the attraction is maximum. You cannot get more than that. And that is why, indeed, it has been noticed that in human beings who have some component on Mulakhara, that is why many people, men and women with a stronger Mulakhara, their aspiration became very wild. It was like a fire consuming them. It was like a madness going further up and further up. And that is why, uh, indeed, this is a specific thing which shows that sometimes when you fall, you have got most to win in this way.
the Buddhist text, for example, they would claim that a human being that is ignorant and in samsara, sunken, sunk, drowning in samsara, would evolve much faster and be much more desperate than one of the gods of Devachan, one of the great gods Allah Indra or whatever, who live in a perpetual paradise, if you prefer, like Jupiter or Zeus, or if you want the equivalent in Western gods, those gods are very high, very powerful, very vast, but they don't head towards God. You could say, well, Indra or Zeus or whoever they are, if they are so high and they have such a clairvoyance and such a vision of reality and they understand the planes of the universe and the evolution and the metaphysics, why on earth? They who are so powerful and they who are so free and clear and long-lived, why don't they do a hell of a lot of yoga to escape quickly from this? That's exactly why, because they are not far enough. The rubber is not stretched. When you are too close, it's like you don't have the momentum. That is why the Tibetans tell us that sometimes even gods and demigods in the appropriate times of history, they choose to be incarnated on earth, to lose their divine free status and to be incarnated in a human body, because being in a human body they, they, they like project themselves further and projecting themselves further from the divine consciousness, it's like it's a springboard, it's like they get the momentum, they get so far from the target that the rubber is stretched again and then zap. They just do one tremendous last effort in that life and they do tons of spiritual practice and then the problem is solved and they reach their freedom. That is reflecting a very interesting subtle principle. I have seen in life a couple of human beings born with a tremendous spiritual evolution. Really, I don't use that word so often. So when I say that I have known people with some exceptional, tremendous spiritual evolution, I mean just that, and I was flabbergasted before I understood this law, why those people who are very advanced spiritually and they could see things which at that time I couldn't dream to see, they were so advanced in their perception of the universe, at the same time they are not making desperate, terrible efforts to cross the last few meters that separated them from the final target. And the reason is that they were so close that they didn't feel the need, they didn't feel the tension, they didn't feel the momentum anymore. Now, any, some of you can say, well, doesn't it happen to all of us? If we start today, do a lot of yoga, then maybe after five years, seven years, whenever, wouldn't we also reach at a high level unavoidably and then lose our momentum? Well, it's like initial speed. If you start with a big speed, it's like a cannonball. If you shoot it, even when it reaches to the point where it's not pushed, it still has an initial speed which keeps it going in the same direction with a big speed. So if you start well, boom, the shooting, and even when you reach to the point where you are like those and you wouldn't be interested anymore, the momentum which you have accumulated earlier keeps you go for another few meters 
and then you have crossed the gap and you are on the opposite shore. So actually starting well in the spiritual practice and do a lot of spiritual practice while you feel the urge, while you feel the momentum, is very good because it's like an initial speed for all the rest of the process. It's good to accumulate speed now because I can promise that one day you will reach to a level where everything will sound equal. There will be no more this urge. You will not be desperate that you are in hell, because you will not be in hell, obviously. And then you can ask yourself, well, where is the motivation for this? That's why you need to have the momentum, so even out of inertia, you should keep on crossing the last distance and reach to the other shore successfully. It's like launch yourself with a certain speed. That is all included into this understanding of Jesus that going further the momentum is greater the transformation is bigger and Jesus all the time proves that it is just a matter of perspective as soon as people got the hope automatically they are ready to make tremendous efforts and then he gives them a lesson of anahata because ultimately these people they are not talking from the heart they are talking on Manipura from the standpoint of some laws. And he says, go and learn what this means from the prophet. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says it in another place so beautifully. That God does not wish the death of the sinner, but his redemption. That means this universe is a school. We are here to evolve. We are here to reach Nirvana. If God would simply kill those who sin... What would be the big deal? Because then they have to be born in the next life and the whole thing is like this. There will be no time for evolution. That is why God, of course, wants even those who do horrible things not to die but to stay here. That is why in all the spiritual traditions suicide is considered such an abomination. Because when you suicide, you try to cheat the universe. You try to cheat God like I have cancer and I would better die. But God says, no, I want you to live with cancer and suffer because maybe you'll get wise and learn something. That is necessary and you are not going to shirk your lesson. Therefore, one of the prophets has said it under the word, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not like the bad ones should be sacrificed. Mercy, not sacrifice, is the law. Not the death of the sinner, but the redemption. That is why the solution is not to take the one who makes mistakes out. That's the bad pupil in the class. You don't throw the bad pupil out of the class, because then he will definitely not learn anything anymore. He has to be kept on purpose in the class, because only by being in the class he has a chance of ever learning something. Even if he is making a mess in the class, even if he is the most problematic pupil in the class, he is better off in the class than thrown outside on the corridor and not in the class anymore. Therefore, there is a divine reason for which people should be here and not beyond that gate. And that is why this policy that people who did a mistake should be killed, it is not correct. Either the ancient Jewish law that the blasphemers and whatever, they could be stoned to death. Why? If somebody is a blasphemer, why should you stone them to death? It's like you are afraid that they will spread their blasphemy. But for them, if you kill them, when will they learn? 
then they will have to be born again and then some other idiot will stone them again. And when will they learn then? Of course they have to be allowed to be here and yes, even to blaspheme. If that's all they can do, let them blaspheme. But at least in the end, they will learn the little, the bitter lesson of that. That is exactly in a certain way the mistake of the Inquisition type of thing. That to save the souls of men, we burn them alive or whatever. That's absurd because God does not want the death of the sinner. I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says God. Therefore, Jesus says, what do you want me to do with the tax collectors and the sinners? Abandon them and then burn them in fire? Just send them to hell? Is that the lesson of the universe? No. I desire mercy because the universe never gives up. The universe never gives up, even on the sinners, even on those that go demonic, on anybody. The universe all the time wants a redemption because this is a classroom, this is a school, and the universe wouldn't fulfill its purpose if you wouldn't give people the opportunity to learn. And that is why there is a great thing here, which as you see when religions become manipuristic, instead of being on Anahata and understanding the laws of evolution, they just get on a position of power. Now we are powerful, we are going to stone you or burn you or whatever. The meaning of it is not that, the meaning of it is to learn. For, he ends the quote by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That means the righteous as in the parable of the prodigal son, the righteous are already called. They feel themselves called. What need? They, if they are righteous because they feel they want to do the right thing. But the sinners are the ones that are the problem and therefore I'm working with those that are problematic. The others don't present any problem. Somebody has some cold water, please. Then it continues. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John's disciples, you realize that most people believe today that John was from the Essenes and the Essenians. The Essenes were a more ascetic sect. They are living in caves and they are living in the desert and they are practicing fasting and extreme purification and they were the equivalent of the very, very ascetic type. And in the presence of Jesus, there is a, almost a permanent fiesta. That means when you read the Gospel of Matthew except, and the Gospels, exception made of the fact that Jesus fasted before his mission and exception made of some things with prayer, you don't actually find any extreme act. Nobody in these Gospels 
doesn't seem to make any peculiar spiritual effort. There's nobody who does 12 hours of pranayama. There's nobody who stands on his head 3 hours. There's nobody who fasts 40 days or 50 days. There's nobody who stands on one leg for 6 months or whatever. There's nobody who does anything really exceptional. It's more like going and talking and believing and miracles and healing. But it's like happening all the time. And then these people are of course puzzled because their misunderstanding is very clear. They and John, they are people who make efforts to reach. And therefore, uh, they, they maybe can accept that, okay, uh, maybe you are uh, indeed what you are, but what about your disciples? At least they are ignorant and they are working for it. And when, why don't they do any effort? That means, isn't it unfair that we do a very tough path and they seem just to travel with you around and that's all they do. And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. This is obviously a pre-announcement of the fact that he will be taken from them. He says, Now that I am with them, they live through me in a state of grace. They are given a lot through me because I am clarifying them, I am explaining to them, I am supporting them, and therefore, what effort do they need to do? They just need to participate to this thing fully, to be into this, and that's enough for them. Therefore, he says, it's a time of joy. Here you can see indeed in the way Jesus put something, something very tantric, the Baba Samadhi type of vision, the fact that it, there's nothing wrong with this universe, there's nothing wrong with this world as long as it is spiritual. He says, when I am here, it's time to party, it's time to be happy. That means there's nothing wrong with the world when I am here and these people are into this spirituality. But he says, there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. This is also an admonition which the early Christians already considered addressed to the next generation. Exception those who have been in the presence of Jesus, all the future ones, they have simply said, now the bridegroom has been taken from us, it's time to fast. And that is why the next generations of Christians they have started with very strong asceticism. This is how you got the fathers of the desert and all the traditions of great mystics and ascetics who prayed and fasted and fasted and did all kinds of things because the word of Jesus is clear. Now it's a special time in history because I'm here, but when I shall not be here, then it's time to fast. Under the name to fast, it's not only literally mean meant fast, it's you can replace the name fast with tapas, tapasya, to make austerities, to subject yourself to a certain effort. It's not only literally about fasting. Fasting is a symbol, a word used symbolically for an austere lifestyle, for a lifestyle in which one makes spiritual effort. And that is why here the implication is very clear and it's an advice for the future generations. When you are in the grace, when you are with God, then indeed there is no need for any of those efforts.
but when you are not and when you feel alone then automatically the only thing which can take you out of there is fasting in the meaning of effort, spiritual austerity, tapasya. And he continues with his parable style. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will put away will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This simply means you cannot use one methodology together with another methodology. It is his statement where he says, uh, to make new empires, you need new human beings, new subjects. And therefore, he says, you cannot use your old method for what I want to do, which is an old thing. You are doing a tapasya and some other manipuristic thing. I'm coming to bring to these people the bliss of the heart. Therefore, I'm changing them. I'm giving them this joy of life, which automatically will make them new. You cannot use an old patch for a new piece of cloth. Yours is an old patch. That means things need to fit with each other. Old, new wine in old wineskins or all the things like this. And therefore, he basically claims, obviously, that he operates a transformation of the human being. That those human beings, by being kept into this atmosphere where he keeps them, automatically they are being transformed. Uh, this teaching corroborates with other teachings which Jesus gives later, showing indeed that his pedagogy is special. It is a pedagogy of grace and of miracles. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. First of all, you see, a ruler. A ruler automatically means a person of authority. Uh, you can imagine that in a Manipuristic environment like that, a ruler is even more Manipuristic. And yet this ruler <laughs> was full of humbleness because he comes and kneels before <coughs> Jesus and says, My daughter is dead, come and put your hand on her and she will live. He does not express that you will bring her back to life. He says she will live in the meaning that at least you will give her a blessing and her soul will go in paradise or whatever is meant with it because for these people life and death were uh, having a different value than we give it today. They were not so attached to it. Death was much more present in those days in the lives of people, about children and adults as well. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, parenthesis episode, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his clothes. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. This is a beautiful story. It is completed by one other of the Gospels, where Jesus even asked, apparently, who touched me, because I could feel the power coming out of me. He was therefore very sensitive. He was aware that a miracle had happened, but he wanted it to be declared publicly. Even such an episode, Jesus will not let it unexploited to the use of God. 
That means people shall see and hear so that they should get paid, right? Nothing should happen without a meaning. Everything should happen for a higher meaning. Jesus, as you can see, is exploiting every point in his advantage so that he preaches efficiently the kingdom of God. And therefore, he is asking there, who has it? And the woman trembling says, it was I, and the episode is the same. The woman was ill from a bleeding. It is meant, obviously, that it is a bleeding from the genital area. It was it specified more clearly in the other rendering, in another gospel, that it was a genital bleeding. And this woman had been suffering for 12 years from it. Is touched. She just touches the cloak of Jesus, the dress of Jesus, and because of her faith, she is automatically healed, of course, with the support of Jesus. Not that she touches, but Jesus says, you did it, take faith, you are healed through your faith. And this pronouncement, which he does through the power of the word, automatically creates the belief in the woman, who automatically is healed thereby. It's just an episode to see this incredible grace which irradiates all the time around Jesus. I'm telling you again and again, there have been great yogis, full of aspiration. Milarepa and Ramakrishna and Buddha and how many others. None of them was so wired up as Jesus was. That means all of them walked on the street, but to pour like this with faith and miracles 24-7 to such a degree of intensity, almost nobody had the power to do that. That means even in the time of Krishna, when you read the stories of Krishna, Krishna himself, who is supposed to be an avatar, he is fascinating, he is many things, and yet he does not reach the intensity of the level of Jesus himself. And that is why you can see all the time in the person of Jesus this special, this like one level beyond anything else that we have seen on this planet. There is nothing which compares with that until now, unless we resort to the legends from Satya Yuga or whatever, when indeed the gods were walking the face of the earth. But exception made of such exalted stories that we don't have in precise, in our wretched Kali Yuga, we don't have a presence on earth, even among the great yogis, who goes that far and that much. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away, that was a sign that the girl was dead. Go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. This is the first major miracle of Jesus where he is raising his first dead. Here is a little girl which was declared dead. The people were already starting with the mourning and the funeral cries and the music and whatever. The girl was considered dead and yet Jesus has the claim the girl is not dead. Of course, the skeptics and those who wish all the time to bring a skeptical note to it, they say, well, Jesus was a hell of a good healer and actually he saw that the girl was just paralyzed or fainted or in a clinical death or in a coma or whatever and he had the power to resuscitate her. One way or the other, remember that that girl was heading straight towards her tomb and yet Jesus comes and declares the girl is not dead, takes her by the hand and the girl stands up. 
perhaps the operation is not that simple because the people were put outside of the room so they didn't really see what happened but nevertheless the miracle remains that here is the first resurrection as simple as that of a girl that Jesus considers not to be dead. Here there is a deeper meaning but I will not reach to that before I will comment on some of the special sayings of Jesus because Jesus has a special attitude to death and life which for example differs a lot from the attitude of the Buddha as you are going to see and that is why there is a special understanding about this story with life and death but I would like to reach first to the words where Jesus clearly sets it forth and then to return with you to this episode and to remind you of this and to show you why this was done why this miracle which seems to violate the laws of nature after all wasn't there a wisdom that this girl should be dead isn't life and death just a wise natural process of nature why shouldn't Jesus allow this girl to die after all there were many other people dying around such as the guy to whom he said let the dead bury their dead and you come with me he didn't say bring me your father and I shall make him alive again and then whatever he was not obviously resurrecting just everybody then he would have been going around to all the funeral services and to all the graveyards around raising the dead first of all that this was obviously a little girl and it's something else because she already had the energy she already had the availability for living a long life and all the others but on the other hand uh, there seems to be a selectivity of some sort because remember, in spite of the fact that he apparently can, because he succeeds every time, he never fails at this one, at this major one, nevertheless Jesus is not just going around and give, bringing back to life just everybody, just like this. He is not obviously coming to earth to stop death. And yet in some cases, he finds a special wisdom in it. Because you can say, well, isn't that wise? After all, Buddha... Uh, excuse, uh, avoids this issue when there comes a woman with a dead child and says bring my child back to life Buddha is using a clever trick and he actually avoids he refuses to do it ultimately while Jesus does not in these special conditions where he is asked, it's true he was asked with faith in front of a crowd yet there was something to prove there in the name of his mission but still, again I am saying he is doing something out of the question and the understanding of that will come later. Just memorize this episode because there seems to be a special understanding that Jesus is giving to death and life. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. 
Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. First of all, you can see that these people had the praise of God. They called him Son of David, have mercy on us. They gave him the highest honors. This shows automatically the humbleness. But at the same time, uh, it shows their faith. But at the same time, you see that Jesus doesn't do it in public. He often avoids to do things in public. Even with that little girl, first he put everybody out, and then he did it when he was alone with her. In the same way here, when he had gone indoors, then he does it, not outside in the public. He never really likes to brag about it, and first he tests their faith, and he says, do you believe this? And they say yes, and then he says, okay, let it be done according to your faith. He all the time challenges people, do you really believe this? Do you really, I mean, are you all into it, or what is this? Do you just want to see something, some show here? And then their sight was restored, and he warns them. He all the time says, don't tell to anybody. That means I don't need a publicity about this. And every time he does it, in spite of it, people, of course, go and brag all over the place. And in this way, of course, the message spreads, the miracle, the rumors of the miracle spread. But alas, at the same time, the momentum turns against Jesus because it's like the karmic accumulation becomes bigger and bigger and the envy becomes bigger and bigger and all the other things and then Jesus sooner or later will pay for all this. While they were going all out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said it is by the prince of demons, by Belzebub, that he drives out demons. Therefore the rift already begins. The more he does it, the more there are some people for whom the mouthful becomes just too big because they consider themselves righteous, they consider that they are the only ones who have the right to administer the law, and there comes a hippie who does miracles and raises the dead and walks on water, and automatically uh, he seems to do more, and he does things incredible. Obviously you are told here that a man possessed by a demon, a form of demonic possession, is that the man had been mute, the man had been dumb and could not speak. Therefore, indeed, there are forms of demonic possession where the person is like stammering, babbling, and not able to utter out, not able to speak. That is considered, was considered still a form of possession of some sort. And while the crowd is having the common sense and realizes, my God, we have never seen anything like this. This is unique in the history of this world, in the history of this people here, the Phariseans already start with the intellectual speculation. We have to find a solution because it's too much to swallow this, to accept this man. If we accept, then automatically realize that if the powerful of the time, they should have recognized Jesus for what he was, they should automatically make him king and ruler and everything because this was the man of destiny. But people don't give up their power and everything so easily in the name of a hippie who just came there and teaching to forgive your enemies and all kind of things. Even if he walks on water, there must be a demonic explanation. He is driving demons out 
with the power of the prince of demons. It's like he uses a bigger devil to shun the smaller devils, which Jesus himself proves later that it is impossible, it is illogical and incoherent, but nevertheless they use it as a fallacious argument because they lack any better argument than this and they try to prove that this man somehow is not right. This is not an unusual thing. Milarepa was challenged till the level that he was poisoned to death. Buddha was challenged by one of the nearby kings and uh, they sent a mad elephant to murder him and so on. That means there were many, many such episodes in history where different spiritual persons, especially those who brought something new, they were challenged because uh, it was too much for the others to accept. <coughs> Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is indeed an amazing thing. Jesus at his time, he says, there is a lot of harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That means the human beings would be available. Should the right teachers be there, there would be more and more people who will get conquered by the spiritual ideals. Unfortunately, there are not teachers enough for how many pupils would be available there. And that was valid even in that time, 2,000 years ago. And that is why it says, ask the Lord of the harvest. That means pray to God, who is the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, to send our workers into his harvest field. Like pray for high spirits to be reincarnated. Pray for the mercy of God to fall on as many as possible souls and turn them into spiritual workers. Basically what Jesus says is like there would, be, there would be space on this planet for ten times more spiritual teachers than there are today. They still would have a lot of disciples each and the world would still be hungry for even more teaching. He says it so very beautifully here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd describing so terribly the situation of the human being, harassed and scattered, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That means they would have needed a guide. Where were the spiritual guides? Here and there you get one like Gandhi, and one like Milarepa, and one like Ramakrishna, and one who becomes for a while a shepherd. But where are the others? More are needed. You know that the great Vivekananda of India, he was complaining, he said, if I would find a hundred enlightened beings, I would be able to change the world. But never in his life did he have a hundred enlightened disciples or anything like this. And therefore, uh, it's like Jesus notices that from the standpoint of God, 
the will of Allah's prayer. This is a Bodhisattva prayer. This is a great prayer, like allow the, the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas to come forth in greater numbers so that this planet can be helped and enlightened more. Jesus obviously sees that more grace can be given. Then we continue with the paragraph number 10. I hope we'll manage to get over it, although it has some ravishing teachings from Jesus. Then Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He gave them authority. This is obviously an empowerment. He gave them a power exactly as Yoga teachers are given sometimes this capacity to go out and to do and thus it is obviously an empowerment from the part of Jesus. And Jesus gives this to his twelve, they are already there, and the Bible even mentions them clearly. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who, is, who has been later called Peter, and his brother Andrew, Andrew having been the first of the disciples of Jesus, he is an ex-disciple of John the Baptist. First he lived with John the Baptist and then he was passed on to Jesus. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, out of which John is that famous. John, one of the apostles, the one who wrote another gospel. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alpheus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, so this was belonging to the caste, to the group of the Zealots, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Not at this point, later, who will later betray him. These twelve, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belt. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. It's starting with wonderful things and Jesus is still the faith where he doesn't want to spread this teaching, his power, too much. And although he made earlier an allusion with the centurion already, nevertheless, he is still sticking to the Jewish community. Obviously, he doesn't send them yet to the outsiders, to the Gentiles and the Samaritans, which are all nations living in the same area, like in the same geographic area, but not being part of the Jewish uh, Talmudic tradition. And he gives them to preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is near, and of course, as a motivator, he gives them the motivation, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy or other skin diseases, the word is 
uh, unclear in Greek it's a general word for skin problems therefore very obvious thing drive out demons and he tells them freely have received freely give and then he gives them this famous asteia, aparigraha type of thing he said be detached rely on the power of God because you are on a mission from God I'm sending you just like this be crazy don't take any gold or silver or copper take no bag or extra tunic or sandals or a staff that means just go completely like this completely without any cover without any backup of any kind just go like this for the worker is worth his keep that means this story this sentence is amazing because he says God will keep you when you do this the worker is worth his keep not that people will keep you maybe people will keep you but it all comes from God remember the worker from where it tells he says Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in his field. That means the one who governs the workers, the spiritual teachers, is God himself. And that is why he said the worker is worth his keep. He is doing the work. That means while you are doing the work, you are worth your keep. Remember this always because this is making a lot, a lot, a lot of differences. Uh, spreading the spiritual message there have been situations where people were ill of terrible diseases and they became inflamed with the spiritual message and they started spreading the spiritual message and then miraculously they are healed just like this because the worker is worth his keep you are doing the work of God and the harvest is rich and there are not enough workers then automatically the angels sustain you God is behind you as long as you do your work the worker is worth his keep and that is why this is a secret injunction in this way of Jesus that whoever can become a spiritual model whoever can become a spiritual teacher should try to do so because God will never let you when you do this most necessary job of all this planet then automatically God is with you that is why this is the same what Krishna says Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. And now comes the severe part. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. All this is so much teaching. It's like this is the essence of the teaching given by Jesus to all those who will ever become spiritual guides or spiritual teachers it should be read again and again sentence with sentence he is advising you like if you go to a town or village address to the locals stay with the worthy one and if they accept you well well if not shake off the feet of your the dust of your feet and go that means there is a message of detachment be detached ultimately give the best Give the peace, give the blessing to that house, because that means give, let, that means, that means, as you enter the home, give it your grieving and let your peace 
rest on it. This is a form of blessing. This is the resultant of your aura. It is the resultant of the spiritual influence that one is spreading. So the message is very clear. But he says, if not, go away. Because people have to choose after all. And suddenly from mild and loving, he tells them, you will see, in the day of the judgment, it will be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah than for, it will be better for those than for those cities. That simply he means people are choosing their own destiny with the demons or with the angels. Let them choose simply. And he says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That means suddenly he declares that the world is a world of wolves, right? You are gentle, you have no money, you have no clothes, you have no nothing, you have no authority, you are just a bunch of ex-fishermen and whatever else you are, tax collectors and whatever. <coughs> and I am sending you barehanded to preach the truth to a world which is based on other things, on power, on violence, on money, on corruption, on other things. And therefore, he gives them the ultimate advice, which is advice with the advice for the, any spiritual person. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That means he never recommends that somebody should go head forward into trouble. He says, be shrewd as snakes. Snake, the snake being uh, always associated with wisdom, like it has a certain wisdom, a certain know-how. He says, be shrewd as the snake. That means don't let yourself banged on your head just like this, just because you are a sheep in the middle of the wolves. Manage. Somehow manage. It is exactly as, vi as Krishna says in the end of his career. They asked Krishna, how did it come that you, Krishna, did so many mischief and so many weird things and so many things and so on. And Krishna said, I was confronted with a historical moment of change and I was confronted with terrible demonic forces, and I did what I could. That means simply I tried to manage, exactly as Jesus says. I was shrewd as a snake. I did whatever I could, of course within certain limits. It's true that Krishna for once goes a bit beyond some limit, but Jesus doesn't tell to his disciples, go beyond the acceptable limit. And nevertheless he says, be shrewd. He says, go to the house of a worthy person, like be associated with somebody important in that town, and see, test the ground. If the people accept you, it means there is a good collective karma, and they will be well. If on the contrary, that place is demonized, like he himself was chased out from that place with the pigs, then automatically he says, then take your stuff, take your sandals, <coughs> shake your dust off, and go and those people will stay with whatever they will have. Uh, and, but, he says, and as innocent as doves. That's very beautiful. That's coming back to the heart. Because some people, if they are shrewd as snakes, they will become on Svadhisthana, on Manipura, cheating, manipulating. Jesus says, be skillful. Nobody says you should be a git, a clumsy git, but at the same time, you should be innocent as doves. That means clean as children, with a certain candor. Be candid as a child, but at the same time it doesn't mean you should be stupid. You should try to do the things with the maximum of your ability. 
use your ability without becoming guilty. Unfortunately today, people use their cunning and skill in guilty ways, in dirty ways, in demonic ways, in which are subjected or which are subordinated to people's ego. Jesus says you can be skillful without being egoistic. We can find people in history who have been highly skillful. Let's take a recent example. Paramahamsa Yogananda. Was Paramahamsa Yogananda a skillful man? You bet. He was quite a skillful man. He went outside of India. What was an uh, Indian, uh, Indian fellow in 1930 in America where they still have racial segregation and all kinds of things? And the colored guy from India was not a big deal for the arrogant uh, white supremacist society which still existed in the 1940s in America. And this colorful guy coming from India, he's coming there and he's, he's skillful, yes he's skillful, he builds ashrams in India. He's friend both with those from India and with those from America. He makes good friend with the ambassador of India, he gets in a photo with him. He takes photo with Mahatma Gandhi, he takes a photo with Shankaracharya. He's friend with everybody. He gets as a disciple a multi-millionaire. The multi-millionaire drowns him with money. He builds ashram, he buys land, he, dies, he travels through Europe. He, he does so many things. Is Paramahamsa Yogananda a skillful man? You bet he's a skillful man. He's not at all dumb or clumsy. He even has time to do some fun, to have some fun in this time, to investigate, to travel what a big thing was in 1940 for a poor guy from India, to travel on the money of an American millionaire, to travel to meet with Luther Burbank, to visit Therese Neumann, to do like, it was a whole adventure, you know, he did a whole adventure of a lifetime, so he had a very rich and colorful life, compared with his contemporaries or even compared with so many of the others, so many of the other Babas and Sadhus from his own place. Therefore, Yogananda is definitely a skillful man, but is he greedy or guilty or dirty or cupid and so on? No, he's not. All the time when you listen to him, when you look to him, he has something of the candor of a child. He is like a child that plays. In his heart, he is not at all greedy or touched by those things. He is having a certain relaxation about it and he is candid. He is candid. He is innocent as a dog indeed, but at the same time he is shrewd as a snake and there is nothing wrong that the spiritual person should be shrewd as a snake. After all, it is not only the possibility of the demons that they should be shrewd as snakes. Here you find the Another statement, which again puts Jesus in a bit in a tantric uh, situation. That means you can see the high spirit of this man, the supreme spirit of this man, that indeed if he is so high that he understands, he incorporates the Baba Samadhi, this uh, open eye Samadhi, he is automatically having the tantric vision implicitly involved in his words, in his vision of the world. Because basically... He is not like a Vedantin that runs away from the world and says what would be the goodness of any shrewdness. No, no. Be just tough. Be just rude. Be just simple like this. Simplify everything. It doesn't matter. No. He says at the same time you can be shrewd as a snake as long as you are innocent as a dog. 
That is the equation. That means there is nothing wrong in dealing with energies and dealing with the things of this world. It is a very important point to learn because else there is this division which is very classical in Tantra. I mention it when I give some advanced teachings of Tantra, usually in the second workshop of Tantra. There, is a, there are some basic metaphysical principles of Tantra by which it is believed that things which are low, such as, for example, money or sex or whatever, they are supposed to belong to the demons. It's down there. It's the dark side. The holy people don't touch it. If you touch it, you are defiled. But the tantrics do exactly this. They boldly step over the borderline and touch it. And they say we can touch it and stay clean at the same time. We can be shrewd as snakes and we can be innocent as dogs at the same time. There is no need to get defiled just because you touch the forbidden zones. The only thing is to know how to touch them. And in this way, here it is rather a tantric attitude than a Vedantic attitude from the part of Jesus, based, of course, again, on the heart, on the purity of the heart, on an understanding through the heart. No, it's okay. I don't know what's happening now. I'm drinking more water than ever. <coughs> and he continues showing an extreme lucidity. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking to you. In fact, this stern warning addresses to the future generations, and it is still valid today, because actually the story of the Bible in all the Gospels never tells us that any of these people, any of these twelve, actually had any trouble at that time. At that time, the momentum was not yet full, it was just building up. So it appears from the story as it followed, that those twelve actually did not have much to fight with. Uh, so it didn't go with flogging and uh, courts of law and arresting and things like this. But the teaching of Jesus became so much more active later, decades later, when actually under the Roman Empire and for centuries the persecution started, and we can say, and you are going to see it's very clear why, that Jesus says it so very clearly later, that the persecution still continues. Remember that the spiritual persons, they have been persecuted by their own. That means when in uh, Islamic environment, uh, I don't know whom, Rumi or whatever, they were spiritual. Don't you think that people were just roses and uh, uh, velvet to Rumi? No, Rumi was handled quite badly by his contemporaries who were precisely jealous at his understanding, at his divinity, at his divine examples. Before Jesus, Socrates was asked to drink poison rather than to be in the middle of man whom he was disturbing with his sharp 
sharpness with his lucidity, in the same way it has happened always when St. Francis of Assisi became an ultra-Catholic saint in the middle of hot-blooded Catholicism, as it still was in the 13th century, or whenever that was, 14th century. Nevertheless, the people of his area were not very friendly to St. Francis. St. Francis was not worshipped in his time as being a saint, exception made perhaps of a few of his disciples, but else the other people, the townsfolk from around and the villagers from around, they treated him like a renegade, they treated him like mad, they treated him bad. Once they tried to burn his eyes, to torture him, they killed people around him, one of his disciples. A lot of dirty things have happened, and therefore, uh, although they were Catholics, and you can say, what can Catholics have? against another Catholic who is even more Catholic than them, who is more Christian than them, and he's just so ideal, so perfect, so loving, living in poverty, doesn't ask anything from anybody. Are people mad? Yes, people are mad, especially when somebody is confronting them with what they could be, with what they should be. Then all the demons hit the fan big time, because it's kind of... You are confronted with it and the tension becomes unbearable and you have to choose on which side you are. And unfortunately most people because of laziness and entropy, they chose to fall down in darkness rather than to make an effort and to stand up on the side of the angels. And therefore, surely there is a lot of trouble there. Saint Teresa of Avila was partly persecuted in her time. Even one of the last great Catholic mystics Padre Pio, he was persecuted, he was so severely persecuted by his own Catholic Church, we're talking about 19, 1910, 1940, whatever, in the 20th century, Padre Pio was so severely persecuted that the Catholic Church forbade him to show himself to the crowd, without talking, just showing himself to the crowd, I don't remember if it was 10 minutes or 30 minutes, once a week. On Sunday, every once on a Sunday, he was allowed to show himself up at a window of a monastery, like the people were far down, and he was coming to a window and giving prayers to people, giving blessings for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. And then he had to go back in his cell, and he was supposed to stay there for the rest of the time. And the assholes who ordered him to do that, they actually claimed that it was for his own good, because they wanted to keep him away from pride and vanity, because there was great danger for his soul to fall into the great sin of vanity. It was great danger that they should lose their chairs and reputation, because Padre Pio was way beyond pride and vanity. He had reached saintliness. But these people were afraid that this guy became more popular than Rome. People were coming to Padre Pio more than they were going to Vatican to see the Pope. And all the point of interest of the Roman Catholic Church has moved from Rome to whatever, wherever he was, Venice, Firenze, I don't know where he was, some city in Italy, some other city. And that place became a pilgrimage place more than Lourdes, more than Rome, more than people were flocking in millions or whatever, to see Padre Pio. And that is exactly what I say. Was a Catholic saint persecuted by his own people? Yes, and that happens all the time. And Jesus knew this so very well. Was Ramakrishna treated badly? Yes, sometimes he was treated very badly by his contemporaries, and others and others. Continue in a second. More water?
to put a tap here. She might do it now. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't take it as a proposal. No, no. There's nothing like it. So this warning of Jesus is so much more valid for the future generations. It didn't happen then, but in a few years it became just like this. And therefore Jesus says, you will be brought as witnesses, you will be prosecuted, you will whatever. But he says, don't worry, let the Spirit of God work through you. Exactly as when you teach and when you go and preach, you don't do anything and you are innocent as dogs and you are just letting it flow through you, why should you change that when you are in the middle of trouble? When you are in the middle of trouble, don't prepare elegant defenses and uh, whatever, just let the Spirit of God talk through you and do whatever you have to do. That is why he preaches confidence till the end. This was so much used in all the martyrs of the centuries that followed, they just behave exactly like this. They behave according to this incredible word. Of course, you need to have a huge faith and a huge confidence in God to be able to behave like that. And he continues with some sad story which defines some elements of the spiritual life in a new light. He says, Brother will betray brother to death and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Incredible stern statement. Not only that he says that even in the family, in the old days, in an environment like the Jewish environment, the family was a very firm cell, and if a one like Jesus says that children parents will put each other to death and so on. It has happened. There have been Christian saints who have been put to death by their own parents just because they converted to Christianity. Incredible tension this message of Jesus has brought. That's why maybe nobody was put to death for becoming a Buddhist, but for becoming Christian, it was like the tension was something incredible. It's like this man has generated such a rift it's such a difference. It is so shining white compared with anything else that the contrast is bigger than anything else. It's like nothing is more provocative to the demonic environment than you following the message of Jesus. Following the message of Jesus, because this message is so perfect, so divine, is like the ultimate provocation to the demons. Nothing irritates them so much, nothing pisses them off so bad, than this. This would be like the kind of number one provocation. Fun is, funny is, ridiculous, funny and sad at the same time that this has been proven right in time. Ever since that time, the message of Jesus was distorted, modified, perverted. The church did a lot of things out of it. The different institutions, the knights did every kind of stupid things out of it. 
the state and the kings did a lot of stupid things out of it. More and more it came, whatever, 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 whatever effort, just to go away from that message. That message is so intolerably radical, it is so intolerably sattvic, it is so intolerably divine, that the demons hate it more than anything else. In the history of mankind, there is little, per, I would say that there is nothing which has created and provoked so much opposition at this. It is true, we have other divine teachings on earth, like we can speak that Kashmir Shaib is, is indeed a very, very divine teaching, very high, very spiritual, but you see that doesn't address so, so much to the masses. That's an elite thing. It involves initiation, it involves practice, it is addressing to a limited number which are an elite and which select themselves through the laws of karma and through their own exquisite aspiration. Therefore, the Kashmir Shaivis may be very exclusive, but it doesn't provoke so much as something like the simple message of Jesus, which is so straightforward, but at the same time it is kind of coming directly from God. There is no ambiguity or no shell on that message. It's like the direct line. That means be like this, love your enemies, do whatever Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is, and that's all there is to be said. Can you live like this? Live like the birds of the sky and all the rest? And automatically this is the ultimate. Do like Jesus did. And therefore, this is indeed uh, a provocation. And the paragraphs which follow will show why. And Jesus actually declares it clearly. And he explains it later even why. He says it again. All men will hate you because of me. It's incredible. Why should men hate people because of Jesus? It is incredible indeed. And yet, it is so. In today's society, it has almost become anew like this. When I was, at least when I was in the communist times in Romania, I thought it was the trip of the communists to hate religion, to hate Christianity, because Karl Marx said that Christianity, the religion, is the opium of the masses. And there was, I thought it was simply their demonic politics, and they were like this. And then I went to a place like Denmark of tolerant people, and I remember one day I was speaking with a Romanian priest who was living in Malmö in Sweden, and he was coming once a month or whatever to serve the mass. He, they were renting a church for the small Orthodox community from Copenhagen, and this guy was taking the boat once a month or twice a month, and they were renting a church for a few hours, and he was making the mass, he was serving the mass for a small number of faithful Orthodox Christians who wanted to listen to hear the mass. So he was taking away his own peace and coming to do this for the believers. And I've asked him, and then he confessed me with sadness. He said, the Western world has become so twisted. He said, do you know that I'm going, and I'm dressed like a priest. He was having these black robes of a priest, and I'm going on the boat, and sometimes there are some of these people who go dressed in black leather jackets and all kinds of weirdos, and they tell me hard words, and they spit on me, and they do all kinds of things just because I wear the cross and I'm dressed in black. It provokes them so much that 20th century young boys and girls, they come and they spit on me and they tell me all kinds of abomination. This in a tolerant nation 
like in Copenhagen, you know? Why are people becoming so crazy? Where is this world going? What is all this, you know? Everybody, everybody had something against it, you know? When in Spain the phalanx of the communists hit, they started crucifying all the monks and priests. They started raping all the nuns on the altars. It was a massacre. It was a bloodshed. It was an abomination. I mean, what do you have with the people that are religious? They sit and pray. They worship. Why should they be so irritating for everybody else? And so on. Therefore, ah, people say, yeah, because we know that in history you are like this and like this and you are preaching this and that and blah, blah, blah. You will always find an excuse. But Jesus has said it 2,000 years ago. People will hate you because of me, because you represent me and therefore you represent something which the demons do not tolerate at all, which is very, very provo provocative for the demons. Never forget this, that the cause of Jesus is very clear and Jesus is the one who says, I came to select the wheat from the weed, you know. It's kind of with me, there is no way but black and white, you can't be in the middle. I'll push you to the wall and either you are with me or you are against me. It's as simple as that. And therefore, you see, Buddha didn't come and say, either you become a Buddhist, all of you, or if not, you'll go and burn to hell, you are not good enough. But Jesus is pushing it to the extreme limit. He's giving you a choice. Either you are... It's not an act because at the time of Jesus there was no baptism. Jesus was not asking people to do a formal act. He simply said, follow my advices. Live in my spirit. I'm bringing you the spirit of God. Live in the spirit of God. He said, those who listen to my words and follow them, those are the children of God or whatever. In whichever way he says it. So it's not about a formality, it's a thing in spirit, but at the same time when you are demonic, something revolts in you, something rebels in you, and it says, no, I don't want to do this, I cannot do this, and so on. And therefore, this is exactly where it is. Uh, somehow the message of Jesus is very provoking. I remember uh, I was giving to some of my pupils in Denmark to read some of the patristic literature, some of the fathers of the desert, the Philokalia, where they were speaking about this kind of practice which they did, and their practice is so beautiful and so intense, and these people, at least two of them, who are very heartful and very keen on this, they came after one week separately, not together. It's like several people have noticed, and they said, you didn't tell us, but now we realize when you start reading this kind of things, the onslaughts of the demons upon you, they double up, they, simply because you read it. The fact that you read it and you go into this, it's like it provokes all the demons. It makes them so angry that you read this and that you do this. And that is indeed the price. The teaching of Jesus is so radical that it kind of, either it makes you white as driven snow and puts you in the right place with God, or if not, it confronts you with something which is really dark. There is no compromise in the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is everything or nothing. You know, take it or leave it. It's very simple. And that is why, uh, indeed, the message of Jesus is perhaps the most challenging message that has been brought on mankind in known history. And he continues with the advice. When you are persecuted in one place, Flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
that simply says this will not take for long. Actually, the history of the church says that this has happened in the winter time. In the winter time when it was more cold and so on, this community, they did not have an ashram. They did not have anything. And then Jesus told them for the time of the winter, go and live in the villages and the cities, preach, do some karma yoga in this way, and then when the spring is coming, we'll meet again and we'll start wandering again. It is kind of the winter retreat of the disciples of Jesus. And he continues with beautiful, beautiful principles, many of them having philosophical implications. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Belzebub, the devil, the prince of the flies, literally, how much more the members of his household. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing which shows that the spiritual humbleness automatically creates a kind of spontaneous reverence. That means we don't really know if, uh, for example, Milarepa was greater in yoga than Marpa. But he never said he was greater than Marpa. Milarepa always, when he prays, he prays to the lineage of the masters out of which he is, to Marpa, to Naropa, to Tilopa, to all the others. There exists a kind of spiritual tendency in the spiritual world that one, out of modesty, out of humbleness, one should stay in their own place. That is why uh, I think uh, it is Guicciardini or another of the Middle Age philosophers who says a beautiful, he puts it in a beautiful way. He says, whoever imitates in good stays under the model imitated. For example, you imitate Jesus as good. You will never be able to say, I'm better than Jesus. But whoever imitates in evil will surpass the chosen model. That means when you imitate in evil, you'll become more evil. When you imitate in good, you will stay under the model. That means imitating something which is good automatically contains a natural humbleness, which means there is no ego and I don't need to say I am higher than that one. I can stay where I am because wherever I am, it is good the way it is. But imitating in evil automatically pushes you further. If somebody is a black magician, you can be sure that the disciple of a black magician will be more of a black magician, more evil, because the evil surpasses itself in this way. That's why he says, if the head of the house has been called Belzebub, how much more the members of the household. It's like the servant of the devil is worse than the devil himself, so to speak, in the, me in the meaning that one will always go down. Remember that going down in the outer darkness, in the tohu vabohu, in the chaos, is much more easy than rising to the levels of order and to the top of the mountain. And that is why Jesus emphasizes this, saying that indeed the way up is automatically full of this common sense. And he continues, So do not be afraid of them. He by this 
he says automatically that a spiritual person should never be afraid of the forces of darkness. This does not mean that a per spiritual person should be not considering the forces of darkness. Ignoring them or underestimating your opponent is the biggest mistake you can do. Jesus says you should be innocent as dogs, but shrewd as snakes. You should realize that the evil force exists and it is acting against you all the time. Therefore, it's a matter of shrewdness eventually. But he says do not be afraid of them. Even when you know they are there and acting, do not be afraid of them because the power of God is paramount. It is supreme. Therefore, there is nothing to be afraid of. Nobody ever in history has claimed, I have been a spiritual person, but unfortunately the devil has got me, the devil has destroyed me. No, that can never happen. That means you can fight and you always win the battle, provided that you fight the battle by the laws, by the rules of the game. Therefore, Jesus says, and remember, that's the absurdity which many people of little faith they doubt and they sometimes ask today, but shall we be afraid? But what about the demons? But what about the devils? But shall I be afraid? Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. Go like a bulldozer. There is nothing which can stop you. The angels are with you. God is with you. The worker is worth his keep. Don't worry about it. God keeps you as long as you do the work of God. There is nothing dangerous in that, in the meaning that you should not be afraid. So he says, everybody will hate you, you will be subjected to that, and so on. But at the same time, do not be afraid, because there is nothing to be afraid. And he says, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden, that will not be made known. That means all these things, even the demonic attacks and everything, they will be revealed, they will be exposed, there will be a disclosure of them. Like an old proverb says, that truth is like the oil, it comes up on water, it bubbles up on the surface of water. Therefore, he says, don't be afraid, everything has a purpose. Even when it seems that this guy's got to you, nevertheless the truth will come up one way or another. There is nothing concealed which will not be disclosed. In your time, or ten years later, or a hundred years later, the truth will come up. Therefore, do not be concerned about this things are shown in their right perspective. What I tell you in the dark, that means privately, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Here he's obviously implicating that you might even get in some corporeal danger, that one may be beaten or whatever, but he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. That's again the basis of martyrdom. People who endured martyrdom often remember this and other similar sentences in which this was a small price to pay. Jesus says, even when you seem to lose, you actually win. Go forward like a bulldozer. Don't be afraid. What is done right is right, and what is right is in the eyes of God. What is right will always be right. And that is why he says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this is indeed where Jesus all the time says, the worst thing is to lose your soul, to get to hell. This is indeed where the problem is. 
losing your soul. He says, don't be afraid. When the devil was tempting him with bread, you remember Jesus says, the man is not feeding only by bread. I can let my body decay and not eat, but let my soul blossom. He said, the man lives by the word of God, what feeds my soul. That is more important. If my soul lives, my body may as well die. But if my soul dies, I am in hell. Therefore, he says, don't allow your soul corrupted. Don't be afraid of those who threaten your body. Be afraid of those who threaten your soul. That means do not allow yourself corrupted. Corruption of the soul is indeed the mortal danger. That's what you should be afraid of. And indeed, this value is so much changed. Today we are a society so much obsessed by the body, by the flesh, by the things of it. Remember, in the eyes of Jesus, the soul is important. And all the spiritualists of this world, they knew so, that you can even sacrifice your body for the sake of saving your soul. The soul is truly important because the soul is the one which goes to eternity. And he gives an example to show where your confidence should be. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That means what is worth a sparrow? A sparrow is like half of a penny. It's kind of nothing. It's just a thing without value. And even such uh, one, he says, are not two so sparrows sold for a penny. That means aren't they almost without value? Yet none of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. That means they fly. God keeps them up. They will not be harmed unless God wants them harmed. And even the, ver the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth much, you are worth more than many sparrows. He says if God cares about sparrows, which in the world of men are worth half of a penny, then how much more are you worth? And he says about you, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Like it's a parable showing who knows how many hairs you have on your head. Even the hairs on your head are accounted for. They are all numbered. That means nothing is happening to you without account. Try to realize, he doesn't speak about Tom, Dick and Harry. He speaks about you. He talks to his apostles. He talks to the disciples. He says, you who are doing the preaching, you who are doing the world of God, the work of God, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That means when you are in such an important spiritual mission, the angels attend to you. Nothing what is happening in your life will be accidental. Nothing can, because if the sparrows are kept flying through the grace of God, then how much more are you going to be maintained and attended? Therefore, he is very, very eloquent to this. He says, why do you worry? And he gives again and again a message which is at the same time fantastic, because on one hand, Jesus is speaking so much about love and humbleness and these wonderful values of the heart and be meek. But at the same time, he says, this doesn't mean to be stupid and to forget who you are. You are the child of God. You are doing the work of God. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. That means you are important. You are the salt, the, the salt of the earth. 
this address is specially to the workers in the field because he is about to turn his apostles in workers, right? And he's telling them, he's giving them the advice. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Do not worry. It is only an irrational fear which makes you worry. Close your eyes and step forward because you are in good hands. You are attended. There is nothing to be afraid when you go into this way. God will be with you. Ah, many people say, well, I have heard about a yoga teacher who had a terrible... Yeah, maybe he was not a real yoga teacher. Maybe he was not really an apostle of Christ. Maybe he was not preaching God. Maybe he was not doing the work of God. There are many mysteries. Maybe it was his time to finish his mission on earth. We cannot always explain everything that happens. Nobody is meant to live forever or whatever. But remember, nevertheless, that Jesus says, as long as your heart is there, as long as your heart is in the right place, as long as you are with your soul is with God, even your hairs are being numbered on your head. Nothing in such a situation is random. Remember, not even the sparrows of the sky fall on earth and lose their lives at random. They do it because of the will of God. And therefore, if the will of God manifests even to the simple sparrows that are two for a penny, then how will it not manifest for the human beings? And especially, how will it not manifest for the few chosen ones who are trying to be perfect and to do the work of God. Therefore, Jesus is simply preaching a complete surrender, a complete confidence, and at the same time he says you should be loving, forgiving, tolerant, you should be humble and meek, but at the same time you should know your value, because if you know your value, then you know exactly what you are. A humble man, one of the fathers of the desert, was praying, and these people, you know them, they were so humble, they were so meek. And while they were praying, the devil appears to him in a vision, and he says, what are you praying there? You are never going to reach salvation, you come to me in hell. And this old man, meek and humble as he was, he immediately confronted the devil. He said, there may be so that I shall not reach salvation, because I am a sinner, and it's all in the hands of God. It depends on the mercy of God. But until then, you are lower than me and lower than anybody else, so go back to your place. You are not the one to pass judgment on me. I don't have to take judgment from you. That means I am meek, and I am not saying, yes, I will. No. He said, maybe it is so, because I am a sinner. Only I know my many sins. I am a meek person, and only through the grace of God will I reach salvation. That's between me and God. But you may not talk about it. Stop bothering my prayer with stupid ideas. That means at the same time, I know that I am trying to do the things of God. If, if Jesus says, even the hairs on your head are accounted for, then why should I worry? And therefore, it means I should know my value. It is exactly this 
that sometimes men and women, they treat themselves badly because they don't love themselves, they don't respect themselves, they don't understand how valuable they are, they don't understand how important the human life is, they don't understand how great is the gift that they received the spiritual truth and that they have received the spiritual message. And because this they waste their time, they waste their life, they ruin themselves, they do all the wrong things, they kind of mock themselves in an act of demonic self-destruction. If they would love themselves, they would try to give themselves paradise. If they would love themselves, they would try to give themselves God. Therefore, remember that the spirituality, in spite of the meekness and all the grand gifts of the heart, at the same time involves a lucidity of your level. That means I am lucid, I am clear enough that I am in a certain way a chosen child of God in this life. It doesn't make me arrogant, it doesn't make me proud, it doesn't make me vanitous, it doesn't make me an idiot, it makes me actually more responsible, it makes me feel more humble and more meek that I have received such a grace and what a responsibility is on my shoulders now and I realize how little I am compared to how much I could be or I should be, but at the same time I know that I am blessed. I cannot throw the pearls to the swine. I know that I am having pearls. And for the sake of the message that has been put in me, for the sake of the truths that have been imparted to me, for the sake of the pearls that have been given to me, I have to treat myself as pearls, because I don't want to drag my pearls through the mud. I am responsible for them. And although I am meek, at the same time, I have to have this spirit of nobleness, of elevation. I am a humble noble, but still I am noble because I cannot deny what has been put in me, unworthy as I may be, what has been put in me is valuable. That means I am maybe not up to this gigantic task for which I humble myself, but at the same time the truth which has been put in me it is the truth of God and that one is valuable and worthy and I cannot persecute that. I have to respect that because that is the wisdom of ages. That is the word of God and it has to be respected as such. And therefore, you see, there is here a very, very beautiful mixture because it's like a karma yoga. In the name of what I do... It is indeed that I am having, like many people say, well, how can you be at the same time humble and at the same time shake the dust of your feet and say this city will be like Sodoma and Gomorrah in the days of the judgment. It's like, aren't you arrogant? No, because as of what I am concerned, I am a beggar, you know. I am going around without shoes and without whatever and I am at the mercy of God and I am at the mercy of people. I receive charity and whatever. Who am I? I am not a big deal. Other people are great and strong. I am not that. I am a beggar. I am like the son of man. I don't have any place to lay my head and I am a hobo. I am a vagabond. But at the same time, the truth of God is strong and it is respectable. And even if I am wretched, I don't have to throw the baby with the water from the bathtub. The truth which is there remains there I can, and I can still speak strongly for the truth. 
I do not speak strongly for my own ego. My own ego is a miserable, terrible little thing. But the truth of God is wonderful and glorious and that should not be mixed with my ego. This separation is purely karma yoga. In the name of my mission, I can be strong and do whatever it is to be done. As when it comes to my ego, only God knows how terrible my ego can be or how little and humble I can be. That means these, thing, these two things do not mix up. Remember that these people were up to represent God among the people around. Therefore, they could not just say, oh, I have nothing to say. They had to speak strong. They had to be strong, although at the same time they had been asked to be innocent, to be humble, to be all the rest. So in this way, it's a mysterious mixture here when Jesus says, you should be like very conscious of what you are. You are chosen in a certain way. Even the hairs of your head are numbered and yet should be humble and loving and forgiving. It's a wonderful mixture. Only the heart can understand that. If you are in Manipura, you can be strong and feel chosen, but you will not manage to be humble and all the others. Only the heart can bring this wonderful synthesis where you can rule over the force of Manipura, but at the same time be in the heart and have all the wonderful softness of the heart. A little bit more to finish this paragraph. Although I guess it requires some solid comments later. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. That's again the attitude of the cosmic consciousness as being a mirror. Jesus is nothing else but the universal consciousness. You do not accept God, you punish yourself. It's like in the laws of the conscious and subconscious mind in your course number 25. If your conscious and subconscious mind consider you guilty, you punish yourself. If you forgive yourself, God has forgiven you. And you cannot do that honestly unless when it becomes total. It is the same here. You are with God in the moment of your judgment. It's like God is with you. You separate yourself from God. How do you expect that God should come to you when you are actually, you yourself, are mirroring? You are nothing else but asking from the universe to show you who you are. It is impossible when you separate yourself that that bridging should come from outside. The human being must take the initiative of the quest. And that is why Jesus puts him on himself, which makes him either the most arrogant person on this planet or fully conscious of his value and what he is. And he says, whoever acknowledges me before men, because it's spreading the good news, right? It's the message. Like his disciples were going to acknowledge him, to say, we come in the name of the Messiah. We come in the name of the Son of God, right? And whoever acknowledges me, I will also acknowledge him. And whoever doesn't, I will not. He says it before in so many other ways. And now he comes with a radical one. But I think we'll stop here because it will get to be too much. It's a long one which will require many explanations. So we'll stop here.
we are at the verse number 34 from the paragraph, from the chapter number 10 in the Gospel of Matthew. All in all, we have 28 paragraphs. We have gone through a low, through a long deal. These advices are specially, specially, specially valid, and you should read them with great care, especially those of you who intend to become workers, for those of you who intend to, out of compassion, to help mankind, what has been told in secret to you that you should speak it in the dark, what has been whispered to you to proclaim it from the roofs, that the truth shall be fearlessly proclaimed to the world. When you intend to do that, these teachings of Jesus are one of the most exemplary advices given to spiritual persons who want to preach a spiritual model to others. They will continue a little bit, but on another note. And then let's stop here. Let's see if you have any questions, comments, problems, other issues that you would like clarified. We speak a little bit if that is the case, and then we stop for a minute. You freely receive that, freely give it, is referring it to the empowerment of the transmission between Jesus and the disciples, or not? The spiritual message cannot and should not be sold for money. That means you know it is even the attitude which you have in this school. If somebody comes and wants to learn spirituality and tells us, I don't have any money but my soul is burning for God, now nobody will leave that person outside because they don't have money. Surely we live in a world where there are some things which have to continue. Even Jesus was receiving donations. It is mentioned at the time that the disciples of Jesus, they had a kind of a small bank with them, and it appears the cashier, the financial man of the group, was actually Judas himself, not uh, a coincidence on that. So uh, they were having some money because they were going around and they had to buy bread and they had to fix this and they had to do that, so it was impossible even in that time to live with that. But they were receiving it like donations. They were sympathizers, they were people who gave them, they were freely giving and so on. Like today, we live in a world where things need to go on. If somebody wants to teach to you, they need to be able to live moderately, to decently, to eat whatever. If we rent a hall, we need to pay a rent for it, unless by some grace of God it is our own and then we don't need to pay any rent for it. And that is why in spirituality, while surely nobody says that people cannot give everything or whatever, it has been done so many times, at the same time, the advice of Jesus, you should not try to condition the giving of spirituality on any material thing. Freely you have received freely give. Whoever wants to know if they have aspiration and desire, 
give it to them because that's what's important. Whoever doesn't have aspiration and desire and wants to pay you for it, don't give it to them because then you are throwing pearls to the pigs. That means it cannot be sold. The spirituality cannot be sold. Maybe you can sell a healing thing. Maybe you can sell a massage. Maybe you can sell some medical procedure. Maybe because this is the rules of the day. But when it comes to the absolute spiritual truth, this cannot be sold in any way and it should not be sold. It would be a shame to try to sell the words of God like a ware. It would be like a prostitution of something that is holy and divine. And that is why when it comes to the supreme truth, those who have received them, they should be ready to impart them. To be egoistic like this, it's completely, completely not the case. That is why it is very dubious what some things which happened later or at some times in the Hindu spirituality or in the Chinese spirituality where people were transforming all kinds of occult and so-called spiritual matters in family business. They would give it only to their children, who would give it only, it was like, a, you know, outsiders. Why? This is like, you know, it's like our own secret and we keep it because it's what keeps us strong. As long as our family has the secret of this method, of this way of training, of this and that, then we are going to make money out of it. People will come to us begging for it, but we actually don't give the ultimate secret, the real big ones, unless to our biggest, our oldest son, or to whatever. This kind of proceeding, which is very much used in India as well, but more the Chinese and the others did, is completely sleazy and abominable from a spiritual standpoint, because then it's not based on freely give, it is not compassion anymore, and that is why the Tibetans and uh, many other spiritualists, even in India, they were actually angry at this, and Geranda, Samhita and others, they said, when you want to practice, go away from your family, go in a foreign country where there is plenty of food and there is no shortage, where people are pious and generous, make a hut, you will receive alms for people, sit there and do your yoga. It's like your disciples, your friends, your sustainers, they should not be from people nearby you, so you don't fall into these egoistic trips into an egoism of your clan, of your family, of your whatever. Because these are terrible things. I have seen in so many lineages, people who consider this very exciting, that this man was coming from the family of the bigger. It's like spirituality is a family business. But it isn't. Actually, in the history of Jesus, very often it appears that his own mother, who is so holy after all, because she is the subject of such... Uh, special thing happening through her and still she did not understand much during the life of Jesus himself. Sometimes she plainly seemed to be not agreeing with or like a little bit like what is this son of mine doing? He is carrying it too far. He is too much simply. And that is why this is definitely not a family story and Jesus in repeated, he just said that father will kill son and daughter will sell mother and brother will do and he says it in the next paragraph again, he comes strong, he says this at least two, three times throughout each gospel that the people of the family will be your own enemies and whatever. He breaks in a very radical way with this and he says all these Americanish Hollywood family 
spirit, you know, back to the family and back to this and dad, I love you and son, I love you and all this shit has nothing to do with spirituality. This is just a Svadhisthana Mulakhara, narrow way of existing in a small circle, cultivating a family security, which is an absolutely fake security because it doesn't exist. And if the universe hits you hard and suddenly your family disappears, then you will realize, whoops, I am like a feather in the wind. What am I? Where am I? Where is my famous security? It's just that people try to build castles in the thin air. They try to build their house on sand, relying on all kinds of social and family relationships, which mean nothing in the eyes of God, both because they are transient, also because they are just relations of the flesh, and also because today they are here, tomorrow you don't remember them anymore, and they are gone. And that is why uh, you will see that Jesus has some bitter things to say about this. His experience is bitter. And that is why it is not something which has to be given by nepotism and by uh, uh, this, you know, oh, you are from my family, I'll tell you the secret. The others are kind of second-grade citizens. Uh, no, freely you have received, freely give but to those who deserve it, to those who ask. That means those who indeed have the soul, they deserve to find it. Those who are not interested and who don't have the soul, even if they are your own family, they shouldn't. Buddha had the biggest problem of all his disciples with Ananda, with one of his, his elder brother or cousin, I don't remember, the only of his disciples who was one of his blood relatives, and he was actually older than him. And this relative... He asked for all kinds of things because he was brother, he was elder brother or elder cousin and the laws of the family are pretty twisted there. And he asked for a lot of privileges. And Buddha then, when he conceded, because this guy said, before I'm becoming your disciple, because if I become your disciple, then I cannot ask for anything anymore. But until then, I'll do it in five minutes, but until then, let me first ask you some things because now I'm still your elder brother or elder cousin and so on. And he put a lot of conditions. I should always have access to you, like come freely to your room whenever I want, like not needing to ask for any special permission. I should always have this and I should always have that or whatever. And Buddha, although he was not responsive to these things, Buddha was out. But to allow this person to become spiritual, he conceded and he said, okay, he acceded to it and he said, okay. And then this man became disciple. And then Buddha said, now, let me tell you my part. Because you have asked me these shameless privileges, you will reach Samadhi only in the moment of your death. That means, for you, you will not reach Samadhi in the lifetime because you are shameless and naughty and cheeky and you have asked too many things and exactly this cheekiness will prevent you from reaching it. And I can tell you this much, you will reach Nirvana. But in the moment of your death, unlike many of other of your colleagues who will reach it during their life, and you are going to look at them and admire them because they have already reached, while you are simply going to wait and get old, and only in the last minute you are going finally to reach it. And therefore, it is the same here. This kind of spiritual things, if they start being conditioned by money, by family, by rules, by shit, they don't work anymore or they go to the rock bottom, they go to the minimal limit. And that is why Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. That means this is 
has nothing to do with anything. It's not related with family, it's not related with money, it's directly from the soul. You have received it from God for free, give it for free to the rest of the world. It is as simple as that. Therefore, you should never try to sell these kind of things. But they don't for example, it's the fundamental law that you have to pay a price, Milareta pay a price to Mark. That was the style of the day. In the Tibetan initiations, they always had to give a gift for the initiations. And the Tibetans had this nasty thing from the Chinese. It's a typically Asian thing on Manipura, that the Tibetans, like the Mongols and like the Chinese, they had this kind of thing. For example, the Tibetan aristocrats, they were very, very flashy. The Tibetan aristocrats, they had sleeves as long as this. Their clothes had sleeves like this. And whenever you saw a man or a woman with long sleeves, what did it mean? This means this is a rich man. He doesn't need to use his hands. He, can, he has servants and he says, bring me water. You know, it's kind of, he doesn't need to work with his hands. Why do you have to show it, you know? It's a typical shameless Asian Manipura. It's a Hong Kong type of Manipura. It's a Hong Kong movie Manipura, a Bruce Lee movie. Manipura, where you just have to show off not only this, but the Tibetans aristocrats, they had very long nails, very long nails and long sleeves because they never needed to work, you know I'm not doing agriculture I'm not a stupid farmer look at my long nails and my long sleeves, I'm an aristocrat this is a typical Asian, Japanese, Chinese Mongolian, Tibetan type of Proud Manipura, rubbish Manipura, bad quality Manipura, really, primitive, ugly Manipura. And that is why, because of this, unfortunately, the Tibetans, even in Buddhism, they develop this crappy thing that sometimes the rich boys from rich families, they could get initiations faster than the poor ones because they simply came with a lot of money and gifts and gave it to the Lamas and the Lamas were giving them the initiations. This is not a very wise thing which they did and it was wrong of them but it is true that the most enlightened teachers like Milarepa himself they knew that it is just a symbolic thing and they never fell in the trap like I haven't heard, I don't remember from the biography of Milarepa that for example Milarepa ever refused initiation to any of his disciples because they didn't have enough money to pay for some ritual gifts or whatever. Therefore it depends. If the teacher is indeed fallen in this trip, uh, in Tibetan things, they would probably do that. But it is not, not good, really not good. It is a manipuristic thing, which is one of the things that spoil the Tibetan culture. Many of the Tibetan lamas and the Tibetan simple people, they complained about it. There is a book of Nicholas Roerich, the man who wrote a lot about Shambhala. The book is called Shambhala, but actually it contains a lot of articles written by Nicholas Roerich while he was in Asia, in Tibet and in Asia. And one of them is about that he writes, what about all the lamas and the people from Lhasa and from the villages complain. And you are going to find out that although the Tibetans respected Buddhists, Many of them were pissed angry at Dalai Lama and at the big lamas from Lhasa who sometimes were behaving like a bunch of arrogant pricks. They were not behaving like spiritual people. They were living in a palace made of gold 
and people had to pay a lot of things for a lot of privileges just like that. This is not a very Jesus-like thing, definitely. So in that way, uh, this was one of the things which was throwing a bad shadow on the Tibetan spirituality. It was one of the main points of contention. Mm -hmm. The faith is coming both through the power of example, seeing the things which happen. Don't forget that the faith is a form of self-suggestion. That means when you believe, you believe. That is why the power of faith is coming through suggestion and through self-suggestion. Study the laws of self-suggestion more because there is where the key of faith is. Sometimes this faith comes spontaneously because you see an example in front of you and if somebody does it, then you can do it. It's like the story in Matrix or Morpheus is trying to free the mind of Neo and then he makes the jump test. He says, okay, it's enough, let's jump. And he jumps to another building. And Neo tries and he flies for 10 meters and then his faith collapses and bam! He takes a nose dive and he goes into the floor. And the people say, well, everybody fails the first jump. It's like you did not accumulate faith but if you see somebody doing it again and again, then you start accumulating faith. Therefore, the faith is a thing which comes both by seeing other examples, and also it is something which comes from the arousing of Anahata. It is very much coming from the arousing of Ajna, the main chakra coordinating what we call faith is actually Ajna chakra remember, and its key in yoga is related with the laws of suggestion and especially self-suggestion. That's where you generate faith, because it is through self-suggestion that you believe that you live and you live. It is through self-suggestion that you believe that the fire burns you and it burns you. It's all there. Faith is nothing else but an absolute self-suggestion. That, that is where you can build it, therefore, with self-suggestion. I'm sorry? Even that is a matter again of self-suggestion, remember. Because it is manifesting at the level of your mind, at the level of your soul, you know it already. That means when you reach Atman, even when you reach Jiva Atman, when you have the arouse, the awakening of the soul, then you don't need to be told anything. You don't need to be told about faith, because you have it and it is absolute. There is nobody who is during an awakening of Jivatman and says, well, I actually don't have enough faith right now. When you are in that moment, in the mystical crisis, you are fully, fully faithful and everything is so clear. But it is the mind which suffers. It is the mind which lacks the faith. Therefore, the faith is something which needs to be built mentally, exactly, exactly like self-suggestion. Exactly. And therefore, yes, even to believe in the will of God is still a matter of self-suggestion. For the mind, for your soul, it is not. But we are not at the level of the soul in the daily life. In the daily life, we fall at the level of rationalism and thinking with our mind. Therefore, it depends what our mind deeply believes.
prefer like uh, what you scream to us one like uh, with desire to be like in a keyboard stick desire but at the end don't fall with the desire? That will be the shrewdness of the snake indeed. We can say that the forms of yoga which use the power of the opponent, such as karma yoga, such as the yogic versions to aparigraha or to brahmacharya, confronting things in this way and using them skillfully, they indeed would represent the shrewdness of the snake. They represent the fact that you can use the forces of nature and get to the other shore nevertheless, cross the ocean of existence nevertheless, not drown because of them. Sure. Enough for tonight.